and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Shoshana Rudsky, Digital Editor at The Horse. Tonight, we're discussing joint health. We'll delve into what causes joint issues, what you can do to keep your horse's joints comfortable, and considerations for sport horses, older horses, and everything in between. This event is sponsored by Rippo Ringer Ingelheim. To answer your questions tonight, we are joined by two expert panelists, Dr. Erica Secor and Dr. Ju Julia Setlidge. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Dr. Sikor, can you tell us a little bit about your background in equine veterinary science? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in small town Vermont and uh, grew up with horses. Um, so becoming an equine vet was kind of an easy, an easy decision for me. Um, so I I uh, did my undergraduate in vet school um, at Cornell University and finished vet school in 2013. Um, I went on to do a one-year internship and then a surgery residency at the University of Illinois. Um, and at that point decided to go into private practice for several years. So I was in um, private practice as an equine surgeon um, for about four years and decided I had done a lot of research um, during undergrad and vet school and really enjoyed it during that time and decided to make the transition back into the research sphere um, and started my PhD back at Cornell again. So I'm in the second year of my PhD program now. Um, and in particular, I study uh, equine osteoarthritis um, with a little bit of carryover to human arthritis as well, um, and particularly the role of the immune system and immunology um, in the development of osteoarthritis. Great. And then Dr. Seltledge, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your role at Boehringer Ingelheim as well? Absolutely. And uh, first, I want to say thank you for having me tonight. So I am a little bit different than Dr. Sikor. So I actually was a horse-denied child. And so I blame my parents for me becoming an equine veterinarian because I wanted everything horse. And it wasn't until I got to college that I was able to actually indulge in horses uh, and seriously indulged in horses and made it my mission. So I wasn't ever going to be an Olympic-level rider because of my late start. I needed to have a profession where I was going to be able to touch horses all day. And so I became a dedicated student to becoming a veterinarian. Uh, and so I ended up going to vet school at Virginia Tech and uh, bounced around for a little bit after my internship and residency. So I'm also a, a board certified equine surgeon uh, and then ended up back at my alma mater in 2009 and was on faculty at Virginia Tech, uh, fulfilling my love of teaching as well. Uh, and left there in 2020. Uh, I uh, left uh, uh, academia then uh, to pursue uh, a career with Boeinger. And so uh, what my role is at Boeinger Ingelheim is I'm an equine professional services veterinarian. And it is the best of both worlds because I still get to teach, which is my passion. And I get to teach horse owners. I get to teach veterinary students still. And I also get to teach uh, equine veterinarians in areas of my expertise, which is lameness, sport horse medicine, and anything surgery, but then also in any of the disease processes that Boeinger has uh, treatment modalities for. Uh, and it's just an uh, absolute pleasure. And I love traveling to different clinics and to different areas of the country 
to be able to share uh, my knowledge and learn also from uh, those equine clinics as well. So it's just a perfect job for me. Perfect. We're super excited to have you both here. And before we dive into our questions, I want to remind everyone of our Ask the Horse live format. We're starting with questions submitted during the event registration. If you're listening live, you can ask questions via the chat window on the app. We'll do our best to get to as many of them as possible. If you're listening to the podcast recording of this event and would like to join us live in the future, please visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive to register for notifications. And with that, we're going to jump right in. To start, Dr. Secor, can you tell us what red flags should alert owners that their horse might have joint discomfort? Yeah, this is a really great question and um, something that has a lot more nuance than what we necessarily kind of automatically think of. So, you know, the obvious ones is, you know, a horse that's lame, you know, they're sore with what they're doing, they're starting to not do their job as well. Um, so that's certainly, you know, kind of the biggest red flag out there. But I think um, as horse owners and veterinarians, I think we've all gotten more um, kind of in tune with our horses and realizing that there can be much more subtle signs. So some other things that I've seen um, in some horses that ended up having um, joint discomfort and some, some pain is, like I said, not performing quite as well. You know, they might still be doing their job, but they're a little bit grumpier doing it. They're not quite, you know, at the level that they used to be. Um, you know, some behavioral changes too. I've had some horses that get really grumpy being in a stall um, that have never been like that before. And, um, you know, I think it's likely because they're getting sore being and they're being in their stall. Um, you know, other kind of behavioral changes, you know, if they're getting grumpy with other horses or, you know, starting to move when you're trying to, you know, uh, mount them when they haven't done that before. All of those can be, you know, potentially um, things that, you know, require some extra, you know, looking into to see what the what the cause might be. Awesome. Great. And then also sticking with you for our next question. We're talking about joint health. Are we thinking just about arthritis or are there some other conditions we should be thinking about as well? This is another really great question. And certainly osteoarthritis or arthritis um, is far and away, you know, it causes the majority of our lateness cases in horses. Um, but that being said, there's there's a lot of other um, disorders and things that can cause um, joint discomfort and concerns with joint health. So um, certainly soft tissue injuries, and those can both be um, ligaments kind of supporting the joint, uh, muscles that, again, kind of support the joint and support locomotion can, can contribute to overall joint health. Um, when we look at young horses, um, there's some developmental joint disorders that we need to be concerned about sometimes. Um, and, you know, kind of in the this kind of sphere of intra-articular within the joint, but uh, there's several joints that have kind of supporting soft tissues right within the joint as well. So one of the big ones we think about is the stifle. Um, we've got, you know, the same as a human knee, we've got um, like an ACL, people, you know, a lot of people injure their ACLs, horses have ACLs as well. Um, thankfully, not as commonly injured as in people, but but can be a source of lameness. They've got um, menisci in there that again, that one is a, a relatively common cause of stifle lameness. So um, arthritis are kind of 
you know, the cartilage damage that we think about with arthritis is certainly one of the big ones contributing to overall joint health, but there's certainly a lot of other disorders and conditions that we need to be aware of and kind of have on the radar as well. That's really helpful. Thank you there. And then going over to Dr. Sutledge for our next question. Lauren in our live chat is wondering what age you typically see horses starting to show signs of osteoarthritis or other joint concerns. Yeah, so a lot of the times we think of arthritis and, and joint problems happening in the, the older horses, but a lot of it depends, and that's true, that does happen uh, because our osteoarthritis is an accumulation and a progression, so it starts really mild and over time can uh, accumulate more and more of the osteoarthritic changes that ultimately will result in some lameness, if not, or, uh, you know, having some lameness even earlier. But depending on genetics and workload of the horse, uh, as Dr. Secor said, whether or not they have uh, any developmental joint uh, problems that they were born with or developed in their, their youth, all of those can contribute to uh, arthritis uh, and having joint issues at even a younger age. So there is no age group that is uh, is eliminated from having the possibility of joint issues. Granted, the older the horse, the more likely to expect to have joint issues in a younger horse, but certainly all horses uh, can have joint disease. Great, and then with you again for our next question. Nan in Arizona is wondering what early signs of joint overload or issues there might be and what owners should be looking out for in their horses. Yeah, unfortunately, the earliest signs of joint overload can oftentimes be really, really hard to detect. Uh, and so we call that uh, subclinical in the veterinary realm. And what that means is that it's there, but we don't have uh, sensitive enough fingers and eyes to necessarily catch an overt symptom that I could tell an owner, uh, you know, look for these things. Uh, and, and that's where, uh, if we could figure out how to intervene at that level, we might be able to uh, really have an effective way of slowing down the progression of, of joint issues. But that being said, things that you could look for are um, getting really good at feeling your horse's joints. So you work with your veterinarian or, or, or other uh, knowledgeable horse people to uh, really get a feel for what's normal in your horse and then get a sense for early, uh, what we call a fusion or swelling within the joint. That might be an early sign that can preclude lameness. Uh, knowing if your horse, knowing what the normal range of motion is for each of your horse's joints because uh, if that decreases, uh, they can't flex as much or flex their knees as much, then that also might be uh, an early sign that might happen before they are overtly lame or showing um, uh, overt grumpiness uh, that was alluded to earlier. And so, so that can be really, really subtle. Um, but oftentimes, unfortunately, uh, the veterinarian is called out um, beyond the early, early signs, and it's actually when the horse is showing overt lameness. Uh, and so it, it can be really difficult to, to see and, and understand what the horse is showing you. Thank you for that. Um, and then going back over to Dr. Secor for our next question. This one is from Julie in Texas. She's wondering if a certain amount of arthritis is considered normal in a horse. 
Yeah, that's a, a great question. And uh, kind of along the same lines of that Dr. Setlitz just said, you know, certainly in older horses, you know, there's wear and tear on the cartilage, wear and tear on the soft tissues that kind of make up the joint. Um, you know, it's great. Our horses, you know, everyone's taking great care of their horses and they're living longer and longer. But, you know, the, the problem that we start seeing is, um, you know, we have a certain amount of wear and tear. And now that they're kind of, you know, to some degree, some horses starting to outlive, you know, their cartilage to some to some degree. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it's normal. You know, certainly a lot of my research and a lot of the research that other people do is, um, like Dr. Setledge said, uh, you know, trying to diagnose these horses earlier and be able to intervene earlier that, you know, hopefully we can start to, you know, do a better job at postponing the development of arthritis. But certainly, you know, again, especially in the older horse population, it's extremely common. Um, so it's something that, you know, as your horses are aging, especially if, you know, you're still using them and still exercising them to some degree, it is certainly something that, you know, a lot of horses do need some management of down the road. And then going right off of that, Janet in our live chat said that she has an older 28-year-old horse, and she's wondering if it's possible for him to have osteoarthritis, even if he has never done much that physically in his life. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, you know, again, there's so many different factors that play into, um, you know, the development of osteoarthritis, both in horses and in people. Um, there's certainly genetic predispositions, certainly, you know, wear and tear from, you know, exercise when they were younger can certainly, um, you know, play a play a role. That being said, the opposite can also play a role. In, and one good um, model for developing osteoarthritis is putting a horse in a cast. Um, so it's that fine balance of enough exercise, you know, the if you don't uh, use it, you lose it kind of mantra. Um, but certainly, you know, accumulating injury can certainly cause, you know, excess wear and tear as well. Um, so it's certainly, um, you know, being an older horse wouldn't surprise me if he does have some degree of osteoarthritis, even if, you know, he wasn't a, a high-end performance horse in his younger days. Um, but certainly there might be the possibility that he's one of the lucky ones that has managed to uh, get to 28 without painful joints too. Thank you. And then going back to Dr. Seltledge for our next question. Pamela in Colorado is wondering if there's any link between joint issues and an increased risk for soft tissue injuries. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, and so the it's chicken and egg, right? And it could go both ways. Uh, do soft tissue injuries predispose to, to joint issues and do joint issues predispose to soft tissue injuries? And the answer is yes. Uh, that one can lead to the other and the other can lead to the one. So, uh, and, and that's why it's really important to get at a horse from a holistic point of view is what is the primary problem and what are the secondary problems? And that's where a veterinarian can really come in handy because uh, we, you know, I can use my own um, uh, body as an example. I have a really bad knee from a horse accident and now that's actually making my back hurt. And the same thing can happen in horses is that they can have osteoarthritis in one set of joints, say the hocks, because that's not uncommon, that might present itself as some lumbar 
uh, and uh, you know both are real and both can cause the horse uh, you know performance issues and the in this particular case my hypothetical the primary problem may be the hawks but in another in another instance maybe there's a soft tissue injury that's causing the horse to carry themselves uh, inappropriately that can uh, put abnormal forces on a joint that could then uh, cause some inflammation in that joint and set them up for some joint disease. And so it can go both ways. Uh, and uh, uh, sometimes it can be really difficult to tease out which one came first in a given horse. And then following along with that whole kind of whole horse approach and looking at the horse as a whole, Sherry in California said that her horse is having more problems going up hills than on flat mm -hmm. ground or going downhill. Might this be joint involved or might something else be going on as well? That's that's a great question, and unfortunately, that is one detail in the midst of all the things we would be looking at when we watch a horse like that. And so, uh, when when I, you know, if they're having difficulty going up the hill, but maybe not down the hill, is could it be a muscle weakness thing? Could it be a uh, you know the the joints that really take the brunt of the weight of the horse that's causing them pain? Uh, say that you know they really have to support themselves on their back end, and so could it be a back hock stifle issue, or even some fetlock could be bothering them. Uh, and, and so I would want to do a look at, at the whole horse uh, if an owner called me to, with that kind of complaint, uh, and and see if I could figure out what's going on with them. I'd look at muscle symmetry. I would do a normal flex, you know, my normal lameness exam, which would include looking at uh, looking at the move on the flat, as well as you know, range of motion, hoof testers, you know, all of the things. And so it's hard to say if that's just joints uh, or if it could be, be something else. That's a super helpful answer there. And then for our next question, we're going to go back to Dr. Secor. And Jennifer in Kentucky wants to know what she can do when conditioning her competition horse to help keep his joints healthy. Yeah, this is an area where um, I think uh, we're, we're starting to get better at recognizing the necessity for kind of keeping the soft tissues strong. And like Dr. Settledge was saying, you know, the soft tissues and the kind of joint tissues themselves, there's this really fine interplay. Um, so certainly keeping all of the soft tissues strong and conditioned are going to help prevent, you know, injuries, both soft tissue injuries as well as joint injuries, um, you know, while they're while they're competing. Um, so yeah, it's really important, you know, finding that that balance between, you know, keeping them adequately conditioned but not overdoing it is really important. And that's where I really, you know, I recommend because it's going to depend a lot on exactly you know, what kind of competition this horse is doing and, you know, if there's any other issues with, with this horse, you know, joint issues or otherwise to kind of take into consideration. So this is where I think Jennifer could um, work really closely with her veterinarian to come up with a really great conditioning plan for that horse, you know, making sure that he's staying, you know, fit enough, conditioned enough, strong enough to, you know, do the job that he needs to do and, you know, hopefully prevent um, you know, excessive wear and tear and, um, you know, things like that, but not overdoing it and getting to the point of fatigue and then having, you know, issues with, with fatigue and, and overdoing it. Perfect. Thanks. And then going to Dr. Seltledge for a bit of following up with that, Mary from Maine 
said she is currently bringing her 18-year-old warm blood back into work, and she's hearing a clicking noise when he walks, but she doesn't feel any heat anywhere. Could that be joint-related, or is there something else she might want to be looking at as well in that? Uh, the creaky horse. I think we all probably have one of those in our lives. It certainly could be a, a, a sounds coming from joints, uh, but does it mean that there is definitely joint disease or inflammation even present? Not necessarily. But that being said, I do think it's worthwhile for, if it's, especially if it's new uh, or if it comes and goes, for a veterinarian to actually take a look and see because is if it is something that is just quietly clicking, it might, and it is a future source of lameness, how nice to be able to try and figure out that now and trying to uh, slow down any progression or to knit a potential uh, lameness in the bud, so to speak. But sometimes figuring out where that clicking is coming from can be really hard because the other things that can cause clicking is, uh, you know, tendons or ligaments just um, popping over a prominence on the bone. Uh, and that not, might not necessarily mean uh, that there's a problem in that horse. It just could be an anatomy thing, and it might not ever predispose them to injury. But they're so big, and they can't point to where they might be feeling that click come from, uh, like you and I could if we went to the doctor with a click. Uh, and so sometimes these are really, really hard to figure out. Is it a stifle? Is it a hawk? Is it somewhere in between? Is it something different? Um, but yes, it could be joints, but it might not. Unfortunately, that's a hard one to follow up with on a horse. Thank you for that. And then um, for our next question, we're going to go back to Dr. Secor. Jacqueline in Massachusetts is curious if alternating between joint injections and systemic injectables would be an effective option for a horse. Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I have owners ask me a ton. Um, so there's lots of different considerations for coming up with a good treatment plan for a given horse. Um, you know, a lot of times we just think of, you know, if we have an arthritic joint, we inject it. Um, but there's so many other good options out there. So certainly one thing um, that plays a lot into my decision making for coming up with a treatment plan for a given horse is, are we treating one joint or do we have lots of different joints that are involved? Um, so if we've got, you know, an older horse, they've got cough arthritis, a little bit of fetlock arthritis, you know, maybe some coffin joints or something, um, you know, we start adding up a lot of joints to, to medicate. Um, and those are the ones that uh, I really do like reaching for some of those kind of more systemic options. And there's lots of different systemic options out there. Um, so those are certainly ones that um, I very much consider kind of, you know, doing a, a multimodal therapy there. But that being said, even a horse with just a single joint that we're treating, um, I've certainly seen a lot of benefit. Again, this multimodal therapy kind of attacking, you know, the disease process or the pain pathway from several different angles can oftentimes give us better overall outcomes. You know, there's only so much that our joint injections are gonna be able to do, but if we can kind of help target that pain from another avenue as well, we oftentimes can get kind of synergistic effects from those. Um, so I certainly find with some of the systemics, um, some horses seem to respond to one more than another. And you'll find that with kind of, at least I've found that with, you know, all of the treatments out there. There's, there's some horses that, you know, one treatment than another. 
Um, so it's going to be a little bit of a, you know, a trial and error to some degree. Um, but that shouldn't, you know, kind of dissuade people from, you know, giving that multimodal approach a try. Um, and it might just take a little bit of finagling to, to see what works best for that course. Great. And then sticking on the treatment ideas as well for Dr. Soutledge. Joan in British Columbia is wondering if there are any special considerations for treating joint issues in a horse who also has PPID. So, Joan, that's an excellent question. Uh, and I'm going to broaden it a little bit to not just be pointing a finger at uh, PPID and uh, envelop all of our most common endocrine disease. So that would include PPID and equine metabolic syndrome. And I would say equine metabolic syndrome is of more concern than even PPID is. And this, these are horses that may be particularly sensitive to corticosteroids. And, and so that is the main special consideration for uh, treatments uh, for, for horses that have those metabolic conditions is that if they are not well controlled, uh, then uh, avoiding corticosteroids is probably uh, the wise maneuver because the, these horses are more uh, at risk for developing laminitis just on a good day, and the steroids can uh, increase their risk of developing laminitis. And so that's the last thing we would ever want to do to a horse or help cause in a horse. Uh, and so the other thing with PPID that I think people need to remember, and this is why it's also really important to get an early diagnosis of PPID if there's any suspicion, is there's been some re recent research that has shown that horses that have PPID are also at increased risk for developing uh, systemic uh, ligament issues. And that is another, it's not joint, but it's certainly another source of lameness uh, that uh, the endocrine, the PPID can predispose to and is worth uh, trying to eliminate that as a risk factor in the development of another disease process uh, or lameness issue that is can be just devastating in the life of a horse. So, so great question, Joan. That was a super answer there. That was super helpful. I know I have a few horses at home who have PPID issues, so it's always good to kind of, you know, have that in mind for them. Um, and then for our next Absolutely. Question. And yes, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, I was just saying, if they're well controlled, like if the, the endocrine diseases have been identified and treated well, then their, their risk is, and it's under control, and the, their, their risk is, is lower. And so, again, working with your veterinarian to decide what the appropriate joint treatment is with what the horse's job is, what the owner's budget is, and then the pros and cons of what the treatment is. And, and steroids might still be part of that picture, uh, but you'll be feel a little bit better if that endocrine disease is uh, well controlled. Exactly. That's super logical there. Um, for our next question, this is going to go to Dr. Secor. Carrie in our chat is wondering how she can best support horses who have had joint surgery in the past, such as having bone chips removed, screws placed, et cetera, and anything she might want to think about going into the future with them? Yeah, great question. Um, so a lot of that will depend on what exactly was done. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning of developmental diseases in, in young horses, um, and OCD lesions are one of the common ones. Um, that's a pretty common kind of joint surgery in, in young horses. And 
thankfully for a lot of those, I won't say all of them, but a lot of them, the prognosis is pretty good that once you take that out, they do pretty well. And, and for the most part, you don't need to worry a whole lot about that joint down the road. But um, certainly things like screws, if they had a, an old fracture or something along those lines, those might need a little bit more kind of careful monitoring. Um, so again, you know, I'm not a big sticking needles into joints if I don't have a good reason to, you know, if we don't have any lameness or pain associated with the joint at a given time. Um, but those certainly would be joints that I'd be keeping a close eye on. So if they do start getting um, kind of swollen and effusive, having extra fluid in that joint, um, again, kind of keeping an eye out for some of those early, you know, kind of early behavioral or early lameness kind of, kind of signs. Um, you know, I certainly would have those joints on my mind. That being said, though, I've, I've certainly been burned before of trying to, you know, kind of jumping to the, the obvious, you know, one that, you know, has, has screws in it and, uh, and had the lameness, be, you know, coming from elsewhere. So, um, yeah, a lot of it's going to depend on exactly, you know, what was done. Um, but certainly, you know, some of those things that might predispose it to arthritis in the future, I'd just be keeping a really close eye on, you know, the development of any lameness and, and kind of tackling it from there. Thank you. And then we have another question about um, OCDs and stifles. But before I get into that, would you ex mind explaining exactly what an OCD is? Yeah, so OCD is um, osteochondrosis desiccans. So essentially, these are small little um, cartilage with, you know, depending on the, the lesion, sometimes have a little kind of bony, bony core. And essentially what these are, are um, when the horse's bone was developing and what we call ossifying, so turning from cartilage into bone, um, they can sometimes get these kind of defects where, where the process didn't go without a hitch and they it can lead to these small little fragments um so they're pretty common in the pocks um we see them quite frequently in stifles and fetlock joints as well uh less common in other joints but essentially most most joints could potentially have ocd lesions um, and they tend to be diagnosed most often in, in pretty young horses because they're, they're a developmental lesion. Um, but certainly some of them stay pretty quiet and you never know they're there. So, Perfect. So going right off of that then, um, Jill in Ohio said that she has a mare with an OCD in her stifle, but she's sound and performing her job totally fine. Should she still consider removing the chip or should she just kind of let it be for now? Ooh, that is a great question. So stifle OCDs are, are one of the trickier ones. Because um, some of them, it, depending on the location and the size, um, can vary the prognosis a little bit. I guess depending on how old this horse is, it sounds that she's doing her job fine, that she's, you know, not a not a yearling by any means. Um, and, you know, if she's doing her job fine, doesn't have any other signs of joint disease, um, you know, it, it certainly sounds like it's probably a pretty quiet OCD lesion. Uh, but this is certainly one I've uh, seen them, not, not necessarily in the stifle, um, but some other places kind of dislodge later on in life. Um, so, you know, but keeping in mind, surgery is a, a big deal. Um, so I would certainly, you know, kind of recommend keeping a really close eye on that joint 
anything changes either in her comfort or the degree of fluid in that joint, like if she starts looking swollen around that joint, um, certainly, you know, be looking at radiographs and an ultrasound of that joint and a lameness exam sooner rather than later to make sure everything is still pretty quiet. Great, thanks. And then um, for our next question, we're going to go back to Dr. Stoutledge, um, back to talking about injecting joints a little bit. Um, Darren in Vermont wants to know what age is typically appropriate to begin injecting joints. Great question. Uh, and when the joint needs a joint injection, that is the appropriate time to begin injecting joints. And so, you know, if you have a young horse that has uh, maybe has had an, an OCD taken out of, uh, I actually, as part of my postoperative plan, uh, it's not uncommon for men to that horse to get one or maybe two joint injections as a part of its postoperative plan. But that's with the hope of, in that particular case, hopefully not having to continue doing that as um, uh, the, the horse continues to heal. Versus the other young horses that are have a lot being asked from them. You know, we have a lot of sport horses that have to do pretty mature things at a young age. And so they're going to accumulate a lot of wear and tear even at a young age. And so those horses might need to have their joints supported by uh, joint injections. And, and so there isn't a, a right or wrong answer. If the horse needs a joint injection, it should get a joint injection because early intervention uh, can do a lot to uh, slow down that progression of osteoarthritis. And just because a horse uh, might need an injection, say as a, a two or a three-year-old, if well maintained, well managed with a really good um, warm up and cool down and special particular interest paid to that joint, it might not need frequent injections. Uh, and then if, if ever its workload goes down, there's a, a chance that that joint might not ever need joint injections. And so it's just a, a whole mixture between the, the ask of the horse, the condition of the horse's joints, uh, and its, its future needs. Uh, and so, yeah, no particular age. Great. And then following up with that, um, Sue in California is wondering if there's any long-term risks associated with joint injections that she might want to be aware of before she starts considering them for her horse. Sure. So there's a, a lot of thoughts out there that once you start injecting a joint, you got to keep injecting a joint. And then there's also a lot of thoughts that over time, joint injections stop working uh, and you have to start reaching bigger uh, what I'll call ammunition to, to uh, help quiet down that joint uh, and potentially that equates to increase the cost. And so the way I like to look at joint injections are how can I be the kindest to that joint? So first do no harm, right? So I want to make sure I'm not putting anything in there that uh, will just cover up symptoms make the link go away, but is there also something I can put in there that might help slow down the progression of uh, the disease of osteoarthritis? So is there something I can put in there that's disease modifying in a good way as well? And, and so again, yes, there, if that joint needed to have a joint injection to quiet down whatever's going on in there, there is a strong chance that that joint will need to be injected in the future. But uh, as far as an individual product or an individual drug causing problems, the only ones, there's you know, a mainstay. It's, uh, you know, I've been in practice for 22 years. 
Uh, and so if you add vet school on top of that for exposure to um, knowledge of what can go in joints, so for 26 years, Depomedrol is a steroid that is commonly used and has been commonly used in horses. And so there's been research that has shown that that can actually be as good of a drug as it is to get rid of lameness. It can also cause harm to um, the cartilage over time, especially at the higher doses that we might use in a joint. And so that is a, a, a drug now that I, I, in my practice and in my philosophy, I avoid. Um, and contrast that to another steroid that is commonly used, triamcinolone in joints. And that, in the same, out of the same lab um, uh, out of Colorado State, they've actually shown that that uh, steroid uh, at appropriate doses is actually helpful for cartilage and can help keep it healthy. And so it's hard to, you know, most things we put in joints that are helpful. Uh, and have some disease-modifying effects. And so the joint injections themselves are l not likely to have long-term adverse events. That being said, it, the joint is a special place, and we don't want to make it infected. And every time we put a needle in something, there's a chance that we're going to carry bacteria from the outside on the skin into the joint. And so that's why when you have your horse's joints injected, the veterinarian will spend a lot of time making sure that that is uh, low in bacteria. So they're all prep on that, the, the uh, needle in the joint, and they'll often, most of the time, hopefully they are wearing gloves, sterile gloves, to again can prevent the carriage of any um, bacteria into joints that could cause a, a joint infection. It can be um, devastating uh, worse. And so uh, there's some other um, things, joint flares, uh, which is a profound inflammatory response. Uh, relatively random, random occurrence and not very frequent, uh, but then you might hear secondary to joint injections. But again, that is hard to predict, and luckily it doesn't happen very frequently. But all in all, joint injections are uh, relatively safe and should not be detrimental uh, to a horse's joint. That's super helpful. Thank you there. And then for our next question, um, Dr. Secor, Lisa in our live chat is wondering if you can weigh in on stem cell therapy for joint issues. Yeah, good question. And one could probably spend an entire an entire podcast uh, on in and of itself. Um, so I use them in, in particular situations. Um, you know, so, so there's a few different kind of varieties out there. Um, so there's adipose derived. So essentially a small amount of fat is taken from, from your horse. And then the stem cells are, um, isolated from there and grown up and then can be sent back for injection. Um, there's also bone marrow derived stem cells. Um, which again, taken from your your horse, um, uh, and the bone marrow is taken, and again, kind of sent out stem cells isolated and grown. Um, and there's some uh, options out there of essentially what we call off-the-shelf um, stem cells, and these are derived from um, young horses that um, uh, don't survive for for whatever reason, um, and you know, so so typically, you know, everyone, all veterinarians kind of have their, you know, what they've used and what they're comfortable with. The ones I've used the most are the bone marrow derived stem cells. Um, one of the 
kind of hitches with it is it can take several weeks for those stem cells to grow. So you're not going to be able to do it right away. Um, but I've certainly used them and I've tended to use them more just in, in my practice with meniscus injuries. Um, and I feel like they help some of my meniscus injuries. Um, I certainly know other people that have had good luck with them with treating osteoarthritis and some other um, kind of joint disorders. The literature out there, you know, it's a, it's a little tough because um, there's a lot of kind of variability from horse to horse, lab to lab. So it's, it's kind of, it's hard to design a, a really good study to really look at, at all of those, um, kind of take into account all of those variables. Um, but there's certainly situations where, where I think they can be, um, be beneficial. Um, so. Great. Perfect. That's super helpful there. And then, um, following up with that, um, Kimberly in Kentucky said that she is doing a pre-purchase exam on a five-year-old mare off of the track. And she said that the mare had mild arthritis that showed up in her fetlocks on her pre-purchase. She's wondering if that is a big enough problem not to buy the mare, or if you think it might still be worth it with that. And I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on that, but we'll start with Dr. Secor for this one. Yeah, this is a question that I get a, a ton. Um, so, you know, thoroughbreds, they um, certainly have a lot of wear and tear on those joints, and certainly fetlock arthritis is pretty common in them. We see it a lot. Um, and this is another uh, area of, of a lot of research, um, especially with kind of funding through the jockey clubs and things of, you know, how we can um, kind of better manage these horses in their second careers. Um, so I'd say that, you know, having fetlock arthritis is not uncommon in an off the track thoroughbred. Uh, a lot of things need to be considered in terms of, especially with a pre-purchase exam, you know, it'd be a different situation if, you already own this horse and you're you're looking to manage it. Um, you know, with a pre-purchase exam, some of the things that we need to kind of take into consideration is um, what do we ultimately want this horse to do? How um, kind of definitive do we need them to, to be able to do that? You know, do we have any wiggle room of their ultimate job? Um, and what are they currently doing? Um, so those are all certainly things, you know, that I'd be taking into consideration along with this horse's lameness exam and what the actual radiographs look like at the time of pre-purchase. So, you know, I tend to be a little bit more weary if we have a lot of joint fluid there or the horse is, you know, quite sensitive to flexion or we have overt lameness. Um, you know, those certainly would be big red flags. You know, it's always the, the gray zone of, we have the, you know, the radiographic changes, but no overt lameness. So now what do we do? And, you know, that's really where, um, you know, the veterinarian and the, you know, potential buyer really need to have kind of a heart to heart of, you know, what's going to be this horse's job? How much do we love the horse? I certainly go into a lot of pre-purchase exams that, you know, technically are still pre-purchase exams, but the buyer already is kind of dead set on buying the horse. So, so we certainly come across a lot of situations like that. And then it turns into more of a, okay, well, you know, do we come up with a, a management scheme for, you know, if this becomes a problem in the future? So there's lots of different things that need to be kind of weighed into that. 
um, decision for sure. And certainly one where, you know, the veterinarian and the buyer, you know, kind of look at the radiographs together, look at the horse together, have a really good conversation of what the goals are and what you're willing to, you know, to potentially risk, you know, are you okay with having a horse that you potentially need to manage this joint? Or, you know, are you really wanting a horse that, you know, I'd say it's an extremely rare situation that I come out of a pre-purchase exam and find absolutely nothing, you know, on a on a, a horse. Um, we all have our bumps and bruises, but there's a lot of different things to kind of take into consideration there. Great. And then uh, Dr. Seltledge, going right off of that, um, can you talk a bit more about pre-purchases and just looking at issues in general on horses who have been in jobs since they were young, for example, thoroughbreds and other show horses that have been competing and doing things since they were young and anything that people might want to keep an eye out for as they transition them to their next careers and what they're doing with the rest of their lives? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Uh, you know, the horses that have started out in one career and had uh, you know, a life in that career are going to come out with uh, you know th that career's likelihood of issues. You know, as Dr. Secor said, you know, uh, thoroughbreds that have been on the track often do have uh, fetlock and carpal issues. And from other disciplines, uh, say it was a young uh, cutting horse might have issues in hind fetlock toxin cycles. And so, so knowing what the original disciplines problem areas uh, can really help a future owner uh, tailor their expectations and where they're keeping an eye out for potential issues. So in the, in the horse you talked about before that was coming off the track and was diagnosed with some arthritis in the fetlock, you know, weighing what's the desire for this horse in the second career, is it just going to be a trail horse? Do they want it to be an event horse? Because many of these uh, off the track thoroughbreds can go on to be high, high, high level uh, event horses quite successfully, despite having had even a successful career on the racetrack. And so what's the degree of, um, of joint wear and tear that happened as a young, young age uh, and will also help determine what that horse's future is. And then just sitting down, as Dr. Secor said, down with your veterinarian, figuring out what the horse's uh, current issue how well what they what they currently have is rootable, and uh, looking forward into what those four might uh, also uh, add to um, the the horse's wear and tear, your 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 love's wear and tear, uh, and and trying to figure out is it a good match, uh, and if you're lucky and you find a second career horse that doesn't have much wear and tear, then, then you don't, might not have to think about much, uh, much about that. But if there is a lot of wear and tear, say a decreased range of motion or even uh, some osteophytes or some joint fluid or even some overt length, then you might have to accept some basic maintenance um, that uh, the horse might need to do their second career. So a lot can go into that uh, and deciding uh, if that horse is right for you, uh, just sitting down and being honest with your veterinarian, I think would be really helpful. 
Great. So for everyone listening at home, we have a little over 10 more minutes and we definitely have time for some more questions coming in. So if you have anything you want to ask, definitely send that in. And then also through our um, pre-registrations, we got quite a few questions about um, supplements and nutrition. So we're going to touch on that a little bit then. Um, so first for Dr. Secor, Heather in Alberta said that she's seen an abundance of joint supplements on the market and she's wondering what she should look for in picking one. Yeah, joint supplements are, this is another area where we could do like a full hour kind of discussing pros and cons and stuff. So um, I'll kind of give my my thoughts on joint supplements and there's lots of different, you know, opinions uh, out there. So um, a lot of the research with kind of the components of joint supplements, a lot of the research has been done in um, what we call in vitro experiments. So essentially in a lab, with looking at you know cartilage cells and things like that, but not necessarily in the full animal. Um, and certainly a lot of the you know so glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate are two of the most common ones that we kind of components that we see. Um, and certainly you know there's a lot of um, literature out there showing benefits in in cell culture models and and things of that nature. Um, there's certainly a lot of you know, I guess not a lot, more research on the human side, um, but that doesn't necessarily transfer over into horses necessarily very well. Um, one other problem that um, we kind of have with the joint supplement or what we call like nutraceutical market is it's pretty um, unregulated. So with drugs, everything has to go through FDA approval and there's a lot of um, regulations and um, things that, that they have to demonstrate uh, versus joint supplements and nutraceuticals, things of that nature um, are much less regulated. So, you know, certainly they could say that, you know, they contain X, Y, and Z on the label, but uh, there's not actually um, typically any regulating agencies checking that that's accurate. Um, so, so that's kind of the, the con side of joint supplements. That being said, um, I certainly have patients that I use them in. Um, there's some companies, unfortunately, they tend to be the more expensive ones uh, because they do the research and development. Um, but certainly some some companies do, you know, put aside some some funding for, you know, the research side and some more of the um, kind of quality control side. Um, and those are the ones that you know, if, if I have a situation where an owner really wants to try one, those are the ones that I tend to reach for first. Um, because I know they're, they've got some research to back them up. Um, they, you know, have a little bit more quality control than some of the, the other ones out there. Um, chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine are probably two of the most common ingredients. Um, and honestly, it's hard to find a joint supplement without those two. Um, but those are the two that that probably have the most the most research kind of um, on them. So usually, what I'll tell people is, if you if you want to give it a try, you know, go with one of the kind of well known companies um, and give it for three months. See if you notice a difference. If you notice a difference, great. You know, you can decide at that point whether you want to keep going with it or not. If you don't notice a difference, it may not, you know, be worth continuing in your horse. So 
Um, it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky topic for sure. <laughs> Perfect, thank you. And then Dr. Sutledge, keeping with nutrition just for another minute. Um, Emily in Pennsylvania is wondering what nutritional adjustments, aside from supplements, she can make to promote good joint health. So good question. And I am a keep it simple type of person and just a good balanced diet for your horse that is forage based. Uh, and rarely will you go wrong at that point in time. And so if you don't know what a good balanced uh, diet for your horses, please ask your veterinarian. Uh, there's a lot out there that says that veterinarians don't get any uh, nutrition education, but in fact, we do get nutrition education. And uh, your horse veterinarian specifically has a passion for horse nutrition as well. So uh, use them as your partner to figure out what it is that a balanced uh, diet is for your horse that's forage based. And forage meaning your hays and pasture. Base uh, uh, that should be the basis of all of most of the calories your horse is getting. And then after that, adding on any needed uh, grains for calorie and energy purposes. But again, I like to stick with the the known uh, nutritional analysis uh, um, brands instead of a feed mix that is um, that you don't know that, or you're just adding just oats or just corn or just whatever. I think a, a more well-rounded uh, grain is better only if your horse needs it. And then a ration balancer to make sure that they are getting the appropriate mineral, micronutrients, minerals, uh, and um, other other nutrients that, that they might be missing in their diet. Uh, and, and your veterinarian can help you with that. But I'm, I'm keying in on part of that question that said, in addition to supplements, because uh, I think that supplements should be just that, is supplements that they don't make up for a deficient diet. Uh, and so if you, again, if you don't know if your horse is on a good diet, uh, you can get hay analysis and you can uh, match that with your, your grain or your ration balancer and make sure that your horse has um, uh, the right nutrition. And we can't forget the number one thing uh, that our body is made up of and so is the horses and that's water. Uh, uh, making sure that your horse has a really good solid source of very clean water because if they don't if they're even like like us humans we're walking around a little bit dehydrated all of the time that doesn't set us up for good joint health uh, and uh, if we can make sure our horses have really good sources of really clean water then that uh, will also uh, go a long way to, to uh, keeping your horse healthy uh, and then also help keeping the, the horses having enough lubricant in their joints uh, even at small levels so uh, start there great thanks that's super helpful there for everyone we had a plethora of nutrition questions so i'm hoping between those two we kind of covered at least touch on some of those topics there and then great. next we have um from our live chat we have judith who is wondering if there's any new kinds of treatments such as PRP that you are excited about. And I'm going to go to Dr. Secor for that one. Yeah, this is a great question and an area of research that is continuing to expand every day. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of kind of what we call the kind of biologic treatments. So things like PRP or platelet-rich plasma. Um, 
interleukin-1 receptor antagonist protein, or IRAP, if you guys have heard of that, still certainly fall under the biologics category. Um, and there's, there's new studies coming out every day on you know, both these treatments as well as other possible treatments out there. Um, you know, one thing, and, and it's a, an area that um, I'm studying as well as a lot of other people right now is how to pick which treatment for which horse. Um, and, you know, right now we, we don't necessarily have great um, information out there as to which one of these myriad of treatments might work best for a given, a given horse or a given case. Um, so a lot of research groups are kind of working on how to kind of characterize some of these because, you know, we think of osteoarthritis as a single kind of disease entity, but there's a lot of different factors that go into it and a lot of different kind of subtypes of osteoarthritis. Um, and there's some really exciting research kind of going on of how to kind of subtype these different types of arthritis and, and hopefully how to pick better, you know, what treatment might work for a given horse so or person or dog or any, any other species out there. Um, but there's certainly a lot of um, exciting research coming out, both on, you know, like I said, these PRPs and IRAPs, as well as some other um, kind of up and coming treatments as well. So, you know, lots of lots of things that are kind of still early in the works, but um, definitely, you know, every day uh, groups are kind of making strides towards hopefully finding, you know, better treatments or, you know, fine tuning how to how to pick those treatments for a given case. Great. And then for our last question of the night um, for Dr. Setledge, basing off of that a little bit, what are your thoughts on acupuncture and other alternative type therapies such as chiropractic work? for joint discomfort? Uh, it's a great question. And so just so the audience knows that I am a certified veterinary acupuncturist, so I actually adore this question. Uh, I think that both acupuncture and chiropractor can play a role in just whole horse health, and specifically in horses that have uh, soft tissue or joint-related lamenesses. The horse is going to carry themselves differently, and so they might need a chiropractic adjustment to to help encourage them to um, you know to, to correct maladjustments that are causing that are a result of them carrying themselves differently, and so that will help encourage their body to carry themselves more normally. Uh, and then if we can get that pain under control that's causing them to to travel uh, unevenly, then that's even better. And so both chiropractic and acupuncture can uh, really be part of that whole horse treatment for lameness where both of those modalities can be helpful for decreasing the pain associated with um, uh, the, the lameness and then be part of that, their therapy going forward. So it plays a role. I am not in the camp that uh, chiropractic and or acupuncture can fix all things. It is part of the treatment plan. Uh, I certainly use acupuncture on every single horse as part of my diagnostics. It's, uh, I just do a quick acupuncture exam on every horse that comes my way. And then if I believe that based on my Western diagnostics uh, and treatment plan, if uh, uh, I'm only certified in acupuncture, if I think acupuncture can be beneficial, then I'll certainly recommend that. 
And then if I think uh, the horse would definitely benefit from a chiropractic adjustment, then I will help the owner find a professional, a veterinary professional to do that as well. Uh, so yeah, part of the picture and certainly can be very helpful for horses that have lameness. Great. Well, I think we covered a lot tonight. And unfortunately, that is all we have time for. So I would like to thank both of you for joining us tonight. I had a great time. Thank Thanks for, so much for inviting. Great. Thank yeah, you thank so much. You. This has been great. And then also, of course, thank you to Bowringer Ingelheim for sponsoring this event. And finally, thank you to our audience for listening and sending in so many great questions. Until next time, from everyone at The Horse, have a great night.